The other night we, we looked at a passage in which the Buddha it describes in, in quite pithy language what it was that he had woken up to and what impact that had had, had, had on him. And he describes what it was that he had awoken to as this conditions that, conditioned arising. And he spoke of this as a tunna, as a ground, as a foundation, which somehow is another position or perspective from which to lead one's life. It's slightly ironic that he speaks of it as a ground because what conditionally arises is something that never stands still. It's constantly generating other effects and fruits which in turn create other things. He's talking very much of having woken up to a process, to something that is continually unfolding. And this is very much, I think, what we begin to notice when the mind becomes more still and we open our eyes Metaphorically, we open our, our hearts, we open our bodies to this continual movement called life. That it is a ground. It's perhaps the only ground there is, and yet it's one that continuously eludes us. There's nothing here to which we can somehow put our finger and say, well, that's it. It's a bit like this ever-elusive but um, much-vaunted present moment. Be here now, they say. Just stay in the present moment. Now that is a very useful piece of advice as a kind of uh, instruction, as a tool. But anyone who's somehow taken it too literally and sought to, as it were, find the present moment, will find that, in fact, there is nothing you can point to and say, well, that's the present moment. There really is no present moment. A present moment is an idea, a useful idea, but it doesn't correspond to anything. This is often rather perplexing and in fact the more one attends closely to what is happening now begins to notice that there is no now really there is just an endless slippage an endless um, motion of something coming into being and as soon as we've noticed it it's gone the consciousness of what's happening 
is necessarily of something that's already vanished. It doesn't coexist with its cause. It is the result of what's happened. Some of the more troubling findings in neuroscience show that um, consciousness of an object occurs about half a second after the object, be it a sight or a sound or a smell or a taste, has impacted the senses and the nervous system. It takes about half a second to, for the brain to process that information so that we say, oh, I just heard a, a bird up in the tree there. So time is a very strange thing. St. Augustine, one of the fathers of the church, said that as long as nobody asks me what time is, I know perfectly well what it is. But if anybody asked me what it is, I don't have a clue. And I think we might say the same about impermanence. Buddhists don't tend to talk about time so much as change, as impermanence. So when we ask what it is this, about this ground the Buddha speaks of, it's a very slippery ground. It's a ground that's constantly falling away, constantly disappearing, and yet constantly being renewed. In later Buddhist thought, particularly in a school of philosophy called Madhyamika, perhaps the best-known proponent is a man called Nagarjuna, this is called emptiness. Emptiness doesn't refer to some kind of metaphysical ultimate reality, but rather emptiness is the ultimate unfindability of anything. When the Dalai Lama gives teaching on emptiness, he sometimes says that emptiness means that there is zugu tuksamindu in Tibetan, and I'm sure you all know Tibetan, I didn't need to translate that. It, it literally means there is no finger-putting place. There's nothing you can put your finger on. And the same likewise with uh, this other highly elusive but um, vividly real thing called me, or the ego, or the self. It appears to be terribly real. In fact, we spend most of our, time, our lives worrying about it. And yet when we try to find it, when we try to pin it down, it eludes our grasp. In another text attributed to Nagarjuna, he says it's like a, a mirage in the desert, which from a distance looks very real. The oasis and the palm trees and the camels. And yet the closer you get to it, the less real it turns out to be until, in the end, you discover really there's nothing there. So this groundless ground, which the Buddha describes as paticca samupada, conditioned arising, is both the, the heartbeat, the pulse of life, 
and yet at the same time something that is unpindownable, ungraspable, endlessly slipping away and endlessly regenerating as something else. It's process. Now, one might consider that this paticca samupada, this contingent arising, this conditioned arising, is something like the E equals MC squared of the Dhamma, of Buddhism. It's the axiom out of which everything else comes forth. But we saw last time how the Buddha felt an almost uh, sense of despair that anyone would actually get that, would grasp it. He says this is, is deep, hard to see, difficult to awaken to, quiet and consequent, not confined by thought, subtle, felt by the wise. And yet, perhaps for, for us in, in our present day and age, it doesn't really sound so terribly difficult. To, is it not just really a way of talking about causality and change? We know that things come from other things, that causes produce effects, and those effects in turn become causes for something else. In fact, this is very richly illustrated and elaborated in pretty much every field within the natural sciences. In some ways, I feel that the accounts of astronomy and cosmology and evolution are a magnificent um, teasing out of this principle of conditioned arising. And yet, we may know that. It might be part of our general knowledge about things. But simply to know it as information, is that adequate for that insight really to, to change us in any significant way? We may know that I, Stephen, has arisen out of conditions, will last for some time, continuously changing, living in this unpredictable world, and at some point will die. But at another level, perhaps at a level of emotion, a level of um, attachment, of grasping, of self-centeredness, that information doesn't have much impact. I continue to live... I continue to think of myself as something that does not arise conditionally. I have the sense that there's someone looking out of this organism who's always been here. I have the sense that the person who is speaking to you now is exactly the same person who had my memories as a child. If I cast my mind back, if any of us do that, we have a sense of, 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 of constancy. 
that the Stephen who played with his little motor cars and his teddy bear is the same Stephen who's holding up this translation of the Buddha's text. And yet we know, with only a little bit of reflection, that that can't possibly be true. That our bodies have undergone complete changes in their atomic and cellular makeup since that time. I read recently in a popular science book that not a single atom of what I am now existed at the time that I was a child. And yet I'm quite convinced emotionally and existentially that that's not the case, that, he, that I've been around unchanging through all that duration of time. So what is striking, in a way, is not so much the, the, the information or the idea that things arise conditionally, but rather the quality of mind, the quality of attention, of awareness, with which we know that. If we know it intellectually, then that will be relatively um, ineffective in enabling us to experience this process intuitively, perhaps even physically. So the second part of the Buddha's awakening has to do with the, with the quality of attention, the quality of conscious awareness. It wasn't just a piece of information he woke up to, but he woke up to it as though his whole being, every fibre of him at that moment, um, was awoken to this reality, deep down, in such a way that he says that it stilled all formations, relinquished all bases, the craving, thirst, faded away. He describes it as an experience of stopping, certain deep-seated habits of mind coming to a stop, a transformative experience. And this is where, as it were, the practice of, of meditation comes in, that what we're doing on a retreat like this is that we are uh, training ourselves, we're disciplining ourselves to refine our capacity to be conscious and aware, both through stilling the attention, deepening the attention, and then directing our awareness to certain features of our experience that we tend to overlook. And we're doing this again, not as an intellectual exercise or a a philosophical exercise, but we're seeking, as it were, to familiarize ourselves intuitively, emotionally, with the reality of change. So as we sit and as we walk and we just notice our bodies, the sensations in our bodies, the thoughts, the breath, the sound of the wind and the trees, 
that we begin to attend to conditioned arising, change, as something that is felt. And again, the Buddha says, felt by the wise. What we're doing perhaps in one way is, is we're translating an idea, impermanence, into a felt experience of impermanence. Quite a different thing, really. Now, if conditioned arising is the axiomatic starting point, that E equals MC squared, then where does that take us? Or more specifically, in this instance, where did it take the Buddha? And we saw last time that um, he despaired of teaching. He felt that people would not understand him. Now, perhaps there's a certain rhetorical element in that. Maybe a later hand came in and said, well, to really show how terribly profound this thing was, he couldn't possibly imagine teaching it. That might be part of it. But I feel it does point to something that um, is a serious a challenge for all of us when we intuitively grasp something for the first time, something that we haven't known before. And we're likewise faced with this question, well, how do, I, how do I express that? How do I give it form? How do I communicate that? So although he spends a number of weeks, according to tradition, sitting beneath this tree, not quite sure what he's going to do next, in the end, he, he, he decides that there are, in fact, people out there in the world who might know what he's on about. And so he sets off in search of them. And he goes off to the town of um, Varanasi, or Benares, which is still today, as many of you will know, the, the, the center of, of Brahmanical culture, or Hinduism. And he tracks down five of his former companions men with whom he had previously performed a number of ascetic practices. And he decides that he will teach them. And that brings us to the first uh, discourse or the first sermon of the Buddha called Turning the Wheel of Dhamma. Turning the Wheel of Dhamma. And that's what I'd like to look at uh, today and probably in the next talk as well. To try to understand how he converted this axiomatic principle of conditioned arising into a way of life. The principle in itself is not terribly useful. It's no good just to tell someone everything is conditionally arising. Well, so what? How does that become the foundation for what we now call Buddhism? And this move is made very uh, clearly in this first discourse. Let me read it out, and then we'll 
go over it and see how this is um, achieved. It's a short text. This is what I heard. The Lord was dwelling at Baranasi in the deer park at Isipatana, nowadays known as Sarnat. He addressed a group of five monks. One gone forth does not pursue two extremes. Which two? Indulgence in sense pleasure, which is low, ordinary, uncivilized, and meaningless. And indulgence in self-mortification or self-harming, which is painful, uncivilized, and meaningless. The Tathagata, which is this rather strange word he uses to refer to himself, has awoken to a middle path that does, that does not lead to either of these extremes. It is a path that generates vision and awareness. It leads to tranquility, insight, awakening and release. It has eight branches, true seeing, true thought, true speech, true action, true livelihood, true resolve, true mindfulness and true concentration. This is the ennobling truth of anguish. Birth is painful. Aging is painful. Sickness is painful. Death is painful. Encountering what is not dear is painful. Separation from what is dear is painful. Not getting what one wants is painful. In short, the five clinging clusters, or the aggregates, are painful. This is the ennobling truth of the origin of anguish, the craving that leads to repeated existence, given over to delight and lust, keenly indulging in this and that. That is, craving for stimulation, craving for existence, craving for non-existence. This is the ennobling truth of the cessation of anguish, the traceless fading away and cessation of that craving, the letting go and abandoning of it, freedom and independence from it. And this is the ennobling truth of the path that leads to the cessation of anguish, the path with eight branches, true seeing, thought, speech, action, livelihood, resolve, mindfulness and concentration. Such is anguish. It can be fully known. It has been fully known. Such is the origin of anguish. It can be relinquished. It has been relinquished. Such is the cessation. It can be experienced. It has been experienced. And such is the path that leads to cessation. It can be created. 
it has been created. So there arose in me vision, awareness, intelligence, knowledge, and illumination about things previously unknown. As long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear in all these ways about the reality of the four truths, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in this world with its humans and celestials, its gods and devils, its ascetics and priests. Only when my knowledge and vision was clear in all these ways did I claim to have had such awakening. The freedom of my mind is unshakable. This is the last birth. There is no more repeated existence. This is what the Lord said. Inspired, the five monks delighted in the Lord's words. And while this discourse was being spoken, the dispassionate, stainless Dhamma eye arose in the venerable Kondanya. And he said, Kondanya said, whatever originates is something that ceases. Now, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this text in one translation or another. What is quite clear um, is that this is too refined and um, worked out a doctrine uh, to be a simple transcript of what he said in the Deer Park two and a half thousand years ago. Definitely not. If someone had had a microphone and a tape recorder then, it's unlikely that it would have come out as I just read the text. In fact, this is one of these classical texts that can uh, bear an extraordinary amount of uh, reflection and analysis and still keep revealing something new. That, in many ways, is the the characteristic of a classical uh, text, uh, be it within any religion or philosophical tradition. It's something that speaks beyond the immediate audience who first heard it. It's something that continues to bear meaning generation after generation in different culture after culture such that here we are two and a half thousand years later paying attention to it now this short text the Buddha starts by presenting the idea of um, extreme behaviours. And between these extremes, or avoiding these extremes, he traces a path, and this is the famous middle way that we hear about a great deal in Buddhism. It's a middle way, or it's a central path, because it steers clear on the one hand of in, on, on the one hand of a kind of uh, self-indulgent um, dedication to simply seeking stimulation and pleasure, avoiding pain, running around, getting what you think you 
like and want and getting rid of what you don't like. In other words, a life devoted to um, sensuality, a life devoted to self-gratification, but one that does not really stop to think about what's going on. And also, a way of life that in the end doesn't deliver what it promises. In other words, we find that you know, we can get all of these wonderful things, and some of them are wonderful. There's no question about that. But the satisfaction they provide is fleeting. It doesn't last. And even if one manages to get everything one wants, there is no guarantee at all that that will really satisfy one. And I think this is very much um, to the point in our consumer society. The consumerism is very much a society built up on the premise that if we can uh, provide everything that anybody could possibly desire, then we will have a happy bunch of people. To some extent, this is true. It's certainly an improvement over impoverishment and, and so forth and so on. But in the end, it doesn't quite make it. It doesn't quite deliver. And so much of our literature, whether it be explicitly religious or spiritual literature or simply secular literature and film and theatre and so on, are all making this point that there's something more to life than merely stuffing the senses. A life of the mind, one might say. But very often when we reach this point of existential dissatisfaction, a feeling that despite all that we have, our lives still somehow remain hollow, and empty, there's the temptation to swing the other way. And rather than living a life of endless seeking of gratification, we feel that we somehow have to punish ourselves, that we have to deprive ourselves of things, we have to limit what we eat, we have to impose all kinds of restraints and controls over our sexuality that we uh, are forbidden certain kinds of behavior. And we are often led into a culture of fear, a fear of punishment, but also a kind of fascination, if not intoxication, with how much we can put up with in terms of self-punishment. I mean, traditionally this is known as asceticism. I think nowadays our forms of self-harming are much more psychological, perhaps. Self-hatred. Um, anything, really, that um, leads us to uh, punish ourselves in some way and to feel that by punishing ourselves or depriving ourselves, we're doing ourselves good... So the, the, this middle way is one that seeks to steer a course between these two extremes. 
And that's tricky. It's not entirely clear where that might be. But what is explicit here is that uh, this is a path that is not just about uh, following certain spiritual practices, meditating or praying or whatever it might be, but actually needs to embrace the totality of our lives. And it's striking in a way that the Buddha doesn't present this path as an exclusively spiritual or religious exercise, but rather he presents it as a complete uh, way of human living. And he describes it as having eight branches or eight limbs. It has to do with the way we see things, what he calls true seeing, usually translated as right view. And the way we see things, and we'll come back to this in a minute, becomes the foundation for how we think about things, which becomes the foundation for how we speak, how we communicate, which is the foundation for how we then embody our actions in the world, how how we behave towards other people, towards the environment. It has to do with how we earn our living, livelihood, how we make use of the resources of our world to provide the necessities for our life. It has to do with commitment, with effort, with focus, with resolve. And only at this point does he speak of mindfulness, of concentration. Now this is already uh, a teasing out and instantiation of the principle of conditioned arising. That the way we see things is the condition for how we think about them. The way we think is the condition for what we say. The way we speak, or the way we think and speak, is the condition for how we act, which is the condition for how we earn our living, which is the condition for how we can then have a foundation upon which to commit ourselves, having that foundation of basic material security, which then becomes the condition for our inner spiritual attention, our mindfulness, our our concentration. So we can see here that this notion of a path is not just some abstract idea of a path that might, in our imagination, stretch before us. But rather the path is something that opens up within us as a kind of trajectory, as a kind of movement within us that engages our thoughts, our words, our acts, our work. All of that is constituted of the path. And likewise, the image of a path, which is something central probably to all traditions. Um, Jesus, for example, says that I am the way, in other words, the path, uh, the truth, 
and the life. Taoism in China is quite literally pathism. The word Tao, which has been given all sorts of fanciful, mystical meanings, is just the common Chinese word for a path or a way. So there's something very primal about the notion of a path. And it's not so much a path as something that is static, but a path which is really just an open, unimpeded space. When we think of a path, we very often think of something that is imposed upon the landscape. When you look over the valley there and you see a path run across that field, you think of it as a kind of brown line imposed on a green ground. But if you look more carefully, you discover that in fact the path is just a gap. It's the place on that field where the grass has been worn away by generations of, 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 of humans, of animals. It's a gap. It's a space. It is quite literally an emptiness. A path is something that um, allows unimpeded, unhindered movement. And so we can see here already that we're we're talking about a way of being in this world in which we are not constantly hindered or obstructed or blocked by cyclical habits. The endless frustrating desire to get what we want. The uh, frustration, um, or one might even say the hesitation to go beyond our limits. A feeling of existential stuckness, trappedness, blockedness, which in many ways again runs through all traditions as what is meant by uh, the demonic or the devil. The devil is that which blocks the path, which, that which stands in our way, that which hinders us from growing, from evolving, from changing, from acting. And I think in our current day and age, experiences such as, say, depression um, and all manner of other mental maladies are, in a way, symptoms of a kind of inability to move. So a path is about movement, in Sanskrit uh, and in Pali, uh, the word path can also be used as a verb. Pratipatyati. He or she paths. We can talk perhaps more usefully of a path thing. And I think we, feel, we, we, we experience this also um, in meditation. It's interesting to uh, reflect on what we mean at the end of a sitting, for example, when we say, that was a really good sitting. That was a good one. As opposed to, God, that was a terrible sitting. What do we mean then? 
I'm sure each of us ha would have our own way of explaining it, but I think a very common um, point we are making in those judgments is that a good sitting, a good meditation, is one in which we somehow feel that we have entered into a flow. We've somehow unblocked something within us. There's a sense, even though we are sitting still, that we're somehow coming alive, that we're somehow liberated, freed in our thoughts, in our feelings, in our perceptions, to move, to live. There's a kind of brightness that emerges, a kind of vitality seems to be unlocked. And it's a wonderful sense of what the Buddha here calls, um, it's a path that generates vision and awareness, intelligence, knowledge, illumination. And then the next sitting, we do exactly the same. We plonk ourselves down on our zafu. We do whatever we do. We watch the breath. We pay attention to some object. And it doesn't work. And there's that rather strange feeling of frustration as to, well, why in this sitting am I not experiencing those things? And so rather than feeling that we're opening up and coming alive, it often feels that either we're, we're kind of churning about in a repetitive circle. We can't free ourselves from some nagging thought or worry, or doubt, or anxiety. It's kind of got us. Or else we feel kind of leaden, and heavy, and unresponsive, and dull, and sleepy. Or else we get totally caught up in some fantasy of, of desire, or some fantasy of revenge, or some fantasy of fear. And the Buddha called these hindrances and the idea of a hindrance there are five hindrances the idea of a hindrance is basically something that is stopping us something that is preventing the freedom to move a hindrance on a path is like when a tree has come across it or a fence has been erected we just can't budge and I think a you know, a disappointing or let's say a frustrating session of meditation, be it a 45 minutes in here or perhaps throughout the whole day these things persist, is this sense of feeling trapped, this sense of feeling that we're not moving anywhere. So a path is an extraordinarily rich metaphor. Extraordinarily rich. And I think, think it's the first um, step in converting this idea of dependent arising, conditional arising, one thing giving rise to the next, which if you think of it, particularly if you apply it to, say, the natural world, is very much a metaphor of life, of coming alive, of blossoming, of growing, of shedding leaves in autumn, of nourishing the earth that gives birth to something else. And yet as human beings we seem to have divorced ourselves from that natural unfolding 
and freedom and seem to have somehow retracted our egos, our identity into this closed sphere, this closed cell of me. And that is a kind of death, a kind of lifelessness, a kind of inertness. So the Buddha begins his uh, teaching with the idea of a path. And I'm sure that all of those uh, resonances um, would have been as much present at his time as in ours. Perhaps even more so because a path at the Buddha's time would have been a a far more uh, tentative thing. It wouldn't have been a tarmac highway a motorway, but it would have been a rather um, uh, trodden trail that led from one village or one town to another that would have been kept in place just by the constant wear and tread of carts and feet. And also a path, as I mentioned, yes, they would have gone into the wilderness. It would have been a dangerous sort of place. So a path would have been a kind of refuge, a security, but a very... And I would argue that, in fact, what the Buddha's primarily uh, communicating is the path. That, I feel, is what his teaching is all about. Not nirvana or um, liberation, but really entering a path and living one's life in such a way that one is totally engaged in all aspects of one's existence. And in, but in doing so, one is aware of the dangers of slipping either into self-indulgence or self-punishment. But this, of course, begs a question. How do we enter this path? How do we find this path? How do we get there? And it's at this point that he answers that question, it's not stated in the text, by introducing these four ennobling truths, usually called the four noble truths. Why are they called noble the Arya Satya. Arya um, is a word that has a rather bad press in the 20th century. But it was a, a term of the Buddhist time which referred to, um, it did, did in fact have racial connotations then too. The Aryans were believed to be the, uh, the tribes that had come in from the northwest into India probably about a thousand or more years before the Buddha. It's believed that they originated in Central Europe and spread both west into um, the rest of Europe and then east down into the Indian subcontinent. And the Aryans considered themselves to be the nobility. And that would have been how the Buddha would have known the term in his time. But as is the case with many of the ideas um, that were current in his world, 
He preserved them, but gave them a new meaning. To be noble for the Buddha no longer meant to belong to a certain ethnic or racial group or some political class or priestly class, but it meant, um, to, it meant a kind of spiritual nobility, a kind of dignity that was available to anyone. And this, I feel, is really the, uh, the, the universality of what the Buddha taught. And it's at this point that he breaks with Indian tradition, which at the time was already very much identified in terms of, of different castes of people, divinely ordained, and abandoned all of that and spoke of a nobility that any person of any background, of any gender, of any type, could achieve. So when he speaks of the Arya Satya, the noble truth, he's not talking of the truths themselves as noble. After all, what is noble about craving or suffering? But rather he's saying that one who has somehow known fully suffering has relinquished grasping, has experienced the stopping of grasping and, has, and is creating a path such a person has become ennobled, has achieved a kind of inner dignity or nobility. And the four truths present, as it were, a series of phases, one contingent or dependent on the other, that leads into this Eightfold Path. Let me just, first of all, look at this um, <clears throat> in brief. It's often been a puzzle, at least to me, why the four truths are arranged in the sequence that they're arranged. First of all, he says there is suffering. Then he talks about the cause of suffering. Then he talks about the ending of suffering. Then he talks about the path that leads to its end, which seems a rather odd way to organize that information. Surely we should start with the cause of suffering and then go on to suffering itself, the effect. And then we should look at the path that leads to the ending of suffering and then Finally, the ending of suffering itself. That would seem to be more reasonable, more logical. But he doesn't. I think the answer to uh, that conundrum is by recognising that these four truths are not uh, propositions to believe. They're not like four uh, statements of belief. And sometimes when you read a book on Buddhism, you hear, read the Four Noble Truths, one, two, three, four, you kind of have the impression that if you are to be a Buddhist, you somehow have to 
hold on to these four truths as four foundations of your belief system. But the Buddha didn't present them as a set of things to believe. And it's here, perhaps, that one might begin to question whether Buddhism is a religion in the sense that it is founded on a set of beliefs. The Buddha presented these truths as injunctions on which to act. That each truth implies a particular action, a particular form of behavior. They're not um, articles of faith. They are rather um, suggestions to do something. That's what's going to make the difference, what we do rather than what we simply believe. This emphasis on practice um, is, of course, running right through the tradition. And perhaps the most famous uh, parable in which this is uh, put forth is the parable of the arrow, the poisoned arrow, where the Buddha says to his uh, monks, imagine there's a man who has been struck by a poisoned arrow or an arrow. And if that man were to lie on, to be found lying on the ground, bleeding to death, and someone would come, a surgeon, and say, look, I'm going to take out that arrow. But the man were to say, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not going to let you take out that arrow until I know the name of the man who shot it, until I know what caste that man belonged to, until I know whether that bow he shot it with was a long bow or a crossbow, until I know whether the arrow had a pointed tip or a barbed tip, until I know whether the feathers at the arrow's end belong to a crow or an eagle or a vulture, then you can take the arrow out. And of course the monks say, well, that would be crazy. That would be foolish. And the Buddha says, well, in the same way, if someone says, I will not practice what you are teaching until you tell me whether the universe has a beginning or does not have a beginning, whether the universe is finite or infinite, whether the, um, the Buddha will continue to exist after death or will not continue to exist after death, whether mind and body are the same, or whether mind and body are different. I won't do any of these practices until I have answers to all those questions. And the Buddha said, well, in the same way, as a person who would refuse to be treated because he hasn't got the information about the arrow and the, and the, and the archer, he would die without that information. Before he got that information, he would die. And likewise, if one insists on having certainty about these great religious and metaphysical questions, likewise, you could spend your whole life absorbed in such speculations and actually make no change or any 
transformation within your actual existence at all. It'd be a waste of time. And this points, I think, very clearly to how the Buddha saw what he was doing as really a kind of therapy, a kind of healing, rather than a teaching that provided privileged answers and truths to the great questions of life and death. And so likewise with these four truths, they're not things we can very fruitfully just think about and speculate about, but each one is a suggestion or is calling for us to act in a certain way. And what these actions are, are stated in the text itself, where he says, suffering, the first truth, is to be fully known. Craving, or grasping, the second truth, is to be let go of, relinquished, dropped. The cessation of craving is something to be experienced for yourself. And the path is something to be created, something to be nurtured, something to be cultivated. And it's only when we see how each of these truths is intimately tied to a particular action can we begin to see why he arranged them in the sequence he did. Because what it comes down to is that fully knowing suffering is the condition that gives rise to the letting go of grasping. Letting go of grasping is the condition that gives rise to the stopping of grasping and the stopping of grasping is the condition that gives rise to the path itself, the Eightfold Path. So here we see quite clearly the principle of conditioned arising translated into a series of actions that lead into a way of life. And that's what I will um, uh, spell out in some detail in the next talk. And again, I've spoken longer than I, I thought I, sh I would. Um, so now we have time for a walk. And we'll meet here again at quarter to nine for our final sit. Thank you.